Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Backblaze Online Backup. It's a simple way to back up all your movies, photos, music, videos, and all of the data just for $5 a month. It's simple, and you can access all your data online from wherever you are. Try it absolutely free by going to backblaze.com slash cpc. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash cpc. If you need me to spell cpc, man, you're in trouble. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there no questions asked Uh, i've heard stories about all those things Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups i maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups the nerdologues is group therapy meets toastmasters i know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm supportive environment by other nerds just like me And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Garneau and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast with the second part of our Best of 2017 episode. Every year for the past six, we've asked you, the listeners, fans, friends, storytellers, and other such people engaged with the show, to nominate their favorite pieces from the past 12 months of podcasting for our December year-end episode. And between last week and this, here's what you chose. Remember, a whole lot of these storytellers will be taking part in our final live show of the year, which happens on the main stage at the Beat Kitchen this Sunday. Besides bringing back a bunch of favorites, we'll also have a full cover band on stage performing some of our favorite songs of the last year. Uh, It's going to be a total blast. You can get tickets now at the Beat Kitchen's website or snag them at the door. We'll see you Sunday at 7. So speaking of music, we've got to start the episode with some songs, as is tradition. This year we had a bunch of really great guest performers join members of the house band on stage for some tunes, and we're going to open up with a couple of those, starting with the incredible Sasha Rorit, an archaeologist and also collegiate a cappella all-star. Like, seriously, you can find her group's recordings on Spotify. Uh, Back in April, we rented out a classroom clearly intended for use by children at Chase Park in Chicago to do a show themed around, well, parks, uh, Take a Hike was the theme, and Sasha joined Dwight and myself to rock that classroom with a nature-themed KT Tunstall song. Here she is with some amazing pipes on Big Black Horse and a Cherry Tree.
got one more musical performance for you before we hit the stories. This one comes from Mr. Benjamin Rather, one of my best friends and probably the biggest fan of this show. Prove me wrong, guys. Uh, Ben lives in downstate Illinois, but makes it a point to come up every year to share a story and perform a song with me. Uh, This year that happened in September, the last time we were on the main stage at the Beat Kitchen, which explains why I've got an electric guitar on this track. Ben shared a piece about the routine his life as a working family man had fallen into, but noted how there was still room for wonderful serendipity to arise even in a fairly staid structure. It was a really lovely story, and you can check it out on the Living Spell episode now. Here's the song we performed afterwards by Jason Isbell, one of Ben's favorite artists. This is If It Takes a Lifetime. Yeah! Monday it'll be a year And I can't recall a day That I didn't want to disappear But I keep on showing up I'm hell-bent on growing up If it takes a lifetime I'm learning how to be alone I'll 
fall asleep with the TV on And I fight the urge to live inside of my telephone I keep my spirits high I find happiness by and by If it takes a lifetime Well, I got too far from my race And I forgot where I come from And the line between right and wrong was so fine Well, I thought I loved the highway But she beat me like a drum And our day will come if it takes a lifetime Here, I never cared for wine or beer, but working for the county keeps me pissing clear. The nights are dry as dust, but I'm letting my eyes adjust if it takes a lifetime. Well, I got too far from my race, and I forgot where I come from, and the line between right and well, I thought I loved the highway, but she beat me like a drum. And our day will come if it takes a lifetime. product of all the people that he ever loved and it don't make a difference how it ended up if I loved you once my friend I can do it all again if it takes a lifetime well I got too far from my raisin and we fought till we went numb you were running up a mountain from and our day will come if it takes a lifetime oh our day will come if it takes a It's time for some stories. First up today, this piece comes from Ashley Keenan, an improviser and showrunner in Chicago who's done your stories a couple times and always has incredibly thoughtful, gripping things to say. This entry, from our January show-themed resolution, was especially compelling. In it, Ashley takes on her really uncertain days as a transient youth and all the baggage that does and doesn't come with feeling rooted in a home. When nominating it for this year-end episode, the aforementioned Ben Rather, you know, the guy you just heard, uh, said this piece was, quote, honest and heartbreaking and beautifully told. He is totally right. Here's Ashley Keenan with Invisible. 
When I first moved to Illinois, I kept a loosely packed suitcase in the backseat of my car at all times. Along with three changes of clothes, my passport, and a flimsy jacket, I stowed a Polaroid camera and an atlas, which I didn't know how to use. I was accustomed to running away. I didn't like the idea of people knowing me, asking questions. I didn't know it at the time, but my philosophy in life was this. If I can make myself as small as possible, I can go unnoticed. I can be invisible. In my mind, invisibility meant freedom. Some of my first memories as a kid are of being on the run. I remember the flash of a silver waffle iron. As it hurled through the air and snapped in two gaping halves at my feet, my father bursting through the screen door as my mom fastened the last seatbelt of us kids and hurled out of the driveway, gravel paddling behind us. For a time, we lived in a women's shelter, all four of us in the same enormous bed. We shared a restroom with a family down the hall. The sheets were clean, and we ate three meals a day plus snack time, and their lights were always on, and there was hot water and TV and carpeting on the floor. We were genuinely happy there. Mom got a job working at the Family Dollar, and I just started kindergarten. We started to dream of what life could be. It didn't take Dad long to find out where we were, though. After several nights of him yelling street-side, stomping and threatening, we had to run again. The next morning, Mom handed us each a garbage bag for our things. We're not coming back, so don't leave anything behind, she said. Ashley, did you grab Oliver? I ran to the bed and gripped my little stuffed orange cat. I've got him, I said. We loaded everything into the car, and without so much as a wave, we disappeared. There were other places, too, at least 40 moves before I hit childhood. There was a 50-foot drop house out in Amish country. The the kitchen was gray-green, tucked carelessly into the third floor. We moved in in such a hurry that Mom hadn't noticed a mysterious door just right to the sink. My sister dared me to open it. I turned the handle, and before I knew it, I was swinging from the doorknob, dangling three stories above a hollow clay pit, (laughs) where the owners intended to build a pool, but after years of digging, just gave up and left it. From that day on, the door was nailed shut. Uh, There was the house on Pinnacle Street, where Mom tore out the bathroom because it was pink and she hated pink, so we showered in a tall Rubbermaid bucket, water crashing against broken tile as it overflowed because there wasn't any money to put a new tub in. Then there was the summer when I came back from Dad's place alone. It was cheaper to rent rooms than an apartment, so Mom moved us in with some friends from Jersey, some new friends from Jersey. Mom and Tommy took the attic, and the family gave me a bedroom adjoined to their teenage son's room. Frankie was a year younger than me and liked to wear my clothes and come in my room late at night and sit by the couch that I slept on. He never told me he was lonely or scared, but I could feel it in his breath in the way he lingered in doorways and shuffled up the stairs. I was, too. I wasn't brave enough to tell him or console him. I wasn't brave enough to suggest that we ask for help or run away. And two years later, when they found him dead on the orange kitchen floor, I felt those unspoken words in my throat. I could have helped him, but I was too busy being invisible. The apartments on 4th Street were in a food desert and an hour and a half away from my voucher school. I spent my senior year there, taking the city bus home every day, cutting through homeless tents in Clutho Park so I could avoid the rehab center on Liberty Street, where men would grope me, follow me home, and rap on my window once I got inside. My mom disappeared twice that year, once with a tall, hollow-eyed man who'd been sleeping on our couch, then again with my stepdad. I watched behind the barred bedroom windows as they loaded hastily packed bags into the car and disappeared around the corner. I fell into a routine. I developed a strategy for avoiding the landlord so he couldn't hound me for rent. I'd drive to the south side and buy phone cards, and then I'd walk to the payphone around the corner and call my boyfriend in Columbia, 
while staring at a hand-painted sign of the dirt-floored convenience store that read milk, eggs, peanuts, hair. I would talk to him for an hour, or I would talk to him about AP Lit and AP Euro and the trips we were going to take around the world. We'd talk for about an hour or until a man would start pacing behind me for his turn with the phone. As light faded from the sky, I'd hang up and I'd think about my mom and where she was and if she'd ever come back. I'd think about calling, but it was getting dark and her phone probably didn't have minutes anyway. So I walked home, double bolted the door, and turned the TV up as loud as I could to filter away the sounds from outside. The sounds of so many people, together and alone. In the new year, we talk about resolutions. The trouble with resolutions, though, as good-intentioned as they are, is that they shame you for what you haven't accomplished. The books you never read, the man you haven't left, the raise you didn't ask for. Resolutions allow us to hide from who we are today by dreaming of who we might be tomorrow. If I learned anything in 2016, it's that invisibility is a privilege. In the morning, I can get up and put a blazer on and go into the world with a shield of whiteness that protects me from immediate judgment. People will look at me first and think I'm harmless, and second, depending on what I'm wearing or how I speak, evaluate my intelligence, my education, my socioeconomic background. But first, they label me as being harmless. And that's really the key here, is that I belong to a group of people that's viewed as neutral, as incapable of doing harm to others. At the end of the day, I can step out of my clothes, my childhood poverty, my history, and become someone else. No one can step out of their blackness, their queerness, their disability. This year, instead of resolutions, I say do the thing, be the thing, take the actions that give you and others power and purpose. Yes, self-reflection is vital to growth, but change comes only from doing. Today, I choose to be seen. Today, my hopes, values, and convictions will be embedded in my actions. I'm not going to dream of who I can be tomorrow because I have the power to be the person, to be that person today. Thank you. Ever since 2013, we've dedicated our February show to the concept of fan fiction. Fan fiction February has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? That's been a tradition ever since Nerdalog's founder and show producer Kevin Reeder offhandedly combined those words together back in our upstairs gallery days, and I made a note to insist we recognized it every year. This piece comes from our fifth fan fiction February installment and features show mainstay Logan Dean sharing an adventure in the voice of a character a lot of us really dig, Fat Orson Welles, a rotund adventurer whose girth always proves a strange asset in his world-hopping adventures. Here's what friend of the show Jonathan Lester had to say when nominating it as one of his favorites. I love the fanfiction episode every year, and this was my favorite from this year's edition. His first fat Orson Welles gag had me rolling, and this year's edition hit the same notes that made me laugh the first time. It's such a simple concept, but he really nails it. Here's Logan Dean with Fat Orson Welles and the Curse of Solomon's Cone. It was the evening of October 11th, 1983, when I was first made aware of the Cone's existence. <laughs> I, had been, I had recently supped upon the fruits of my labor at a fine restaurant in the Spanish Riviera. They had been made aware of my impending arrival and had taken the time to prepare for me a meal of such epicurean delights that I was not aware that I had been dining for 17 hours until, upon exiting, I noticed the sun's waning position in the sky. <laughs> As I wedged into my hired car, preparing to sleep for one to six hours, my attention was co-opted by the clearing of a man's throat. Mr. Wells, the voice began before I struck the man across the temple with my cane. <laughs> he crumbled into a ball on the floor of my car. 
Satisfied with this development, I rested my cane against the seat and immediately went into a mild comatose state. (laughs) Waking from this slumber, I noticed the man was still patiently waiting. As I raised my cane, he cried, Wait, please! At this plea, I lowered my cane and motioned for him to get on with whatever business he had. (laughs) Mr. Wells, I am here as an envoy from the estate of the late Lord Derringer. I raised an eyebrow, feeling layers of skin fold above my eye. (laughs) Lord Derringer had once been a trusted confidant and friend until a faithful expedition to the jungles of Brazil to find the lair of a jaguar god said to be terrorizing locals and the owner of an artifact that was said to contain great power. (laughs) Though we never found the lair, I was able to evade a cannibalistic tribe by executing a a cunning plan of hobbling one of Derringer's legs and fleeing alone into the jungle. We had not spoken since, and he was not found until two years later, leading the very tribe I had left him to die at the hands of. Late, I questioned? Yes, Mr. Wells. Lord Derringer has re- was recently the victim of an accident. This piqued my curiosity quite a bit. Since the Brazil mishap, Derringer had been quite the stickler for safety. It is said he hadn't left his manse in nigh on a decade and rarely met with outsiders. And what kind of accident has befallen my old adversary? Sir, I do not wish to speak of such matters in such an open environment. I understand. I motioned to Drummond and said, To the townhouse! We drove in silence for the better part of an hour, during which I picked at a baked caplin that had been brought to me during my slumber. <laughs> I offered none to the young man, though he could have used the hearty meal. <laughs> he stared gloomily out the window of the car and wiped sweat from his, wiped sweat from his brow frequently. I always kept the heat in the car turned high so as to produce a thin layer of perspiration. It helped when exiting the car as a sort of natural lubricant and kept my parts of my body cool. (laughs) Arriving at my townhouse, I was helped to the door by Drummond. In this time, I decided to ask the young man his name. I am Finley, sir. I am the current executor of Lord Derringer's estate. Well, I thought Charles Dowson to be Derringer's counsel. Don't tell me old Chuck has had some misfortune befall him as well. Mr. Dowson is currently indisposed. I am here to deliver a message under the directorate of Lord Derringer himself. (laughs) At this I was surprised. No doubt this message was some sort of jab or taunt by my old friend from beyond the grave. Very well, we shall convene in my study. As we convened in my study, I motioned for the young man to have a seat while I leaned against a granite slab in the corner that served as the closest thing I've had to an office chair in two decades. <laughs> Derringer recently came into possession of an artifact that he had spent the better part of his life searching for, an artifact of great power that he said you informed him of many years prior. At this, the man reached into his valise and removed a small metal box. Derringer and I frequently searched for intriguing items, I told him. In our shared use, it was together, but in the last many years, we did so apart, often in rivalry. Indeed, Mr. Wells, Lord Derringer often spoke of you as a brother. Though you had a falling out, it was his final wish that this object be given to you. (laughs) I see. I wobbled my way toward the man and took up the box. I noticed now that it was cold to the touch. Opening it, I was amazed at what I beheld. This cannot be. The Cone of Solomon? It was lost to time. I turned back to the young man only to find that he had disappeared through the door, his job finished. I returned my attention to the item in the box. 
The cone was six inches long and hewn from solid silver. Inlaid in its uh, sides were jewels. It is said that King Solomon used it to trap a creature similar to the North American Wendigo that brought cold spells to his kingdom, which caused the cone to be cursed. The curse was as such. Anything put upon the cone would melt, whereas anyone who touched the cone would instantly freeze. It looked like a fancy ice cream cone. (laughs) As I beheld this treasure, I noticed a piece of paper within the box. It was a handwritten note. My old friend, it began. If you are reading this, I have passed on. I leave you with a treasure greater than any the world has ever seen. I give it to you in hopes only you can destroy it. If not, I hope it kills you, you fat slob Lord Derringer. <laughs> ever, the charger, ever the charmer, I said to my study. It had been my lot recently in life to destroy cursed objects like this. But in that instant, a strange feeling came over me, and without thinking, I touched the cone. Normally, this would kill a man, but because of my immense girth, I was able to touch the cone for 1.7 seconds before it overcame me. (laughs) This sensation that followed was not unlike the slowly lowering myself into the pools of cold water I do on some occasions. As soon as I touched the cone, I withdrew my hand. I had not instantly died, as the story foretold. I quickly deduced that I could handle the cone because of my life. I took up the cone once again and threw it into the hall. From there, I began to kick it across the floor toward the entrance to the patio. Once outside, I gave it one more good shove into my pool, which is consistently filled with burning nitrate film stock containing footage from my lost masterpiece, Don Quixote. (laughs) A peculiar thing happened then. For a split second, the flames in the pool froze and glowed in eerie blue. After that moment had passed, the clone itself began to met. A curious fate for a curious object. Seeing as I had committed more physical exercise in the past ten minutes than I had in the past decade of my life, I summoned my chefs to prepare a trio of young hens for a late evening snack as I went across the estate to have my suit forcibly removed by being cut from my body. (laughs) I sit now, having supped upon these delicious birds, a large satin drape covering me, composing this memory to the page while it is still fresh in my mind. Thank you so much, Logan So far, this episode's featured a couple returning favorites, but this next piece comes from a newcomer to the show this year. In March, we recorded an episode at the Logan Theater to celebrate International Tom Hanks Day with the theme Catch Me If You Can. And for the first time, Chels Harvey took our stage, sharing an incredibly touching and I think surprising piece that starts off being about their family's response to cockroach infestation and turns into something else entirely. Uh, Chels became a show favorite in 2017 for a bunch of us, including fellow producer Katie Johnston-Smith, who gave me her year-end dominations merely by saying, anything Chels did, uh, you'll see why. Here's Chels Harvey with The Roach Dance. So by the time that my family figured out that our home was infested by cockroaches, it was absolutely too late. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which is the kind of warm, humid environment where palmetto bugs, which is like the very polite southern way of saying cockroach, um, they just absolutely thrived. They loved it there. It was not unusual to see cockroaches like running along a storm drain or like behind a dumpster in broad daylight. Um, But it was kind of unusual when my family started to see them in our house, like between couch cushions or like underneath plates in the cupboards, Um, just like anywhere that you don't want to see a palmetto bug. Um, And 
When we did notice, it's funny because we absolutely did not come up with like a plan for how to get rid of them or really strategize at all. Um, what we did instead was to begin this kind of horrible, strange choreography that one adopts when you're learning to live with something that no one wants to acknowledge. Um, I call it the roach dance. Uh, so the roach dance went a little bit like this. Um, someone would spot a cockroach, and when they did, that person would jump up from their place on the couch and grab a shoe. This was kind of a cue for the other two people uh, to know that they needed to jump up from the couch and also grab their weapons. Um, so after that would happen, uh, you would grab like a broom or a spray bottle of chemical cleaner, or if you were my brother, you would grab a literal fucking paper towel. <laughs> a paper towel. I am still haunted by the idea of my human fingers touching a roach through only the thin layer of a paper towel. Let it haunt your dreams, people. It will never go away. Um, so I obviously did not do that. Um, yeah, I feel bad because I missed my favorite part of that joke is that I call them the, um, like, uh, a suit of armor body because holy shit, have you ever seen a roach before? It looks like a little suit of armor, like, just coming to destroy you. Um, so anyway, uh, once we had our weapons, um, just, just picture this, right? Like, I'm hunched over, I've got two shoes on both of my hands, I'm ready to literally slap a roach to its imminent death. Um, my mom is clutching a broom, like, in the scared way that Scooby-Doo does when they find him in a closet in a mansion. Um, and then my brother is holding a fucking paper towel. Like, I don't even think I can imagine anything that's more, like, fragile masculinity. Um, so we're all there, prepped, ready, and on someone's count we would strike, which pretty much meant that I would get scared, drop both shoes, my mom would knock the roach with a broom um, onto the ground, and then my brother, yelling expletives, would use his fucking hand to break the roach's body in front of us. So anyway, this went on for a long time, and I want to emphasize that it was not planned. One day it just kind of happened. We realized that we were coordinating in this like very strategic way, and it went on like this for years. Um, we worked together to annihilate the roaches one by one every time they appeared, simultaneously refusing to acknowledge or allow that there might be a larger problem. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it took me many years to see that this impromptu choreography mirrored the way that my family responded to the first symptoms of my mental illness. Um, like the roaches, these symptoms appeared as if out of nowhere, like bugs hiding in the dark of our family home. At a moment's notice, they would appear. Uh, compulsive thoughts, often about killing myself. Uh, loss of interest in things that I loved, like school or finishing a book. Um, irritation that I absolutely could not control. And sadness that I did a terrible job of hiding. Each one would reveal themselves to us, to me and my family, and the choreography would begin, except instead of shoes or brooms, of course, they struck with excuses or suggestions. The first time I asked my mom if she thought I might have bipolar disorder, um, I could hear her sighing over the phone. Chelsea, that is a very serious disorder. You don't have that. You're very anxious. Why don't you take up jogging? Um, <laughs> my brother told me that I was selfish and a bitch. Um, they conflated my symptoms with traits because that made them easier to eradicate or dismiss. When I finally moved away from home, mental illness and the roaches followed me. After six months in my first apartment, I began to notice small brown seeds showing up. 
Um, I thought that these seeds were like literally part of some sort of like pollination in Georgia that I didn't understand um, until a few months later when I realized that they were cockroach eggs. They were eggs. Cockroaches lay eggs. Um, and I'm not going to tell you how I figured that out, but I will say that it was not Google. Um, so here I am in my first apartment surrounded by like fledgling baby cockroaches um, doing the dance alone. The cockroach dance uh, with one spray bottle of Windex, one set of hands, and I realized that it wasn't working. <laughs> um, like my symptoms, the eggs were growing, changing, taking over, running out of places to hide. I left that apartment and I moved to Chicago where there were no roaches and no dance. I figured in some way I'd left both problems behind. I thought I'd been cured. <laughs> Um, I kept trying to kill the parts of me that made my life more difficult, that made relationships more difficult, uh, and I chased after them with the same excuses that my family used, until one day uh, the excuses stopped working and I didn't have any more weapons. On February 27, 2017, I admitted myself to the ER at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. When you check yourself into an ER, um, the floor nurse makes you tell her the symptoms that you have in front of an entire room of people. Uh, so somewhere on a hospital form next to my name, it says suicidal ideation, which is like a fun little uh, way to say what I actually said to them, which was, yeah, I don't know. I can't stop thinking about killing myself and have for the last four days. Um, <laughs> I was admitted to the inpatient psychiatric wing after a 20 minute conversation with the ER psychiatrist um, who in 20 minutes diagnosed me with bipolar one, bipolar one. For seven days, without a phone or laces in my shoes, I was forced to face these symptoms that I'd spent years avoiding, and my diagnosis. Bipolar 1 is a mood disorder. It's characterized by alternating periods of deep, deep depression and mania, um, which is a period of activity in most cases, or in my case, a kind of anxious agitation. So, like, I don't even get the cool kind, right? Because, like, mania is when you get to, like, write a book in, like, five minutes. My mania was, like, I get mad at my dog. <laughs> um, very not chill. Um, but bipolar one and the bipolar spectrum um, is a chemical medical problem. It's a medical problem. It's a chronic illness. Um, it's not a failing, it's not a weakness, and it's not something to be ignored or fixed with jogging. If you learn to manage it, in time you can learn to live with it. Uh, I've been taking pills for 18 days, and I do feel better. Um, I haven't told my family about my stay in the hospital, and I probably never will. <laughs> So something that surprisingly hasn't come up yet in these best ofs, your stories went on tour this year. For the first time ever, because I had a couple weeks off between jobs that turned into a couple months, but whatever, uh, I took this show on the road, along with my guitar and my dog, who is currently in my face making noise, and we recorded like 12 episodes across the American West. We're actually releasing a tour retrospective next week because it felt like an adventure of that scale needed its own tribute. But I was really happy to see that a couple pieces from the tour made it into the general best of, starting with this one. Actually, I'm especially glad to see this one because literally no one came to the actual show that this comes from except the other storytellers. 
Uh, this happened in Minneapolis in the upstairs private room of a bar whose name I don't even remember and don't care to look up. Uh, we ended up being double booked with a band that night, so the band got the downstairs and we were relegated to a private room that wasn't even in the same building as the bar. Like, you had to go outside to get to it. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you plan a tour with two weeks' notice. So it just ended up being me and all the other storytellers sitting in a circle sharing our pieces for the microphone and each other. And it really was one of the coolest parts of the tour. Uh, in part, that's because it was a reunion with Claire Friedman, who, as mentioned in the last episode, moved to New York at the end of 2016. Claire also brought some other close connections to do the show, including her boyfriend, who you'll hear next week, and her brother, who you're going to hear right now. Andrew Friedman clocked this ridiculous and hilarious piece about going to an anime convention many summers ago that ended up leaving him with some images that scarred him for a long time. I don't want to say any more than that, but this piece is so good, and I'm so stoked that Andrew's going to be able to make the trek from Minneapolis to Chicago to do our show this Sunday. So here's Andrew with Anime Convention. I traveled to Dallas one time. Brad just flicked me off. I, tra I traveled <laughs> to Dallas one time. Um... And when I was in Dallas, I was at a hotel for a thing that doesn't matter. And I, uh, uh, right before I was in the hotel for this big thing, I showed up a little bit late, and um, I go to the desk to check in, and they're like, hey, sorry for the wait. And I was like, what, what do you mean, sorry for the wait? They're like, oh, there's an anime convention here, and they wouldn't leave. And I was <laughs> like, what? how long have people been waiting? And he was like, the people have been waiting about five hours for their rooms. And then, so I... I I couldn't believe it. My friend said that they went up to their rooms and, like, there were windows broken and there were just their rooms were completely trashed. And there were literally people. This is not an exaggeration. There, I realized it was an anime convention because there were people sprinting through the hallway with their arms back. <laughs> <laughs> because they thought in real life that's how it works, too. That's how, that's how detached they were. And I think, I think it really, like, I, I, have, I have come to love certain animes and by that I mean one in particular but we'll get to that uh, and, I, and I've, yeah, I found that the more people you get the more people you get who love anime in a circle the more they love anime <laughs> to an extent that is really just unacceptable it doesn't work like that with other things uh, but so I, I go up to my room either way I get my key I go up to my room and I open the door and I see that there are actually people still in my room they haven't yet vacated my room and these people are all cosplaying I don't recognize them, but they're they're cosplaying certain people who all happen to at this point be having sex with each other. <laughs> and I was 17, and I was real thrilled. Um, the one the one figure I was pretty sure I did recognize though was in the corner. I think it was the Grim Reaper. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure in the corner, standing, not really doing anything with anyone, know how, was uh, the Harbinger of Death himself. So I decided I'm going to go back downstairs, and I go to the desk, and I kind of slowly go to the desk, and I go, hey. And then right away, the guy behind the desk grabs a broom and goes, god damn it. And then we, <laughs> we go up the stairs, and he kind of shoes him out. He shoes him out. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I, I was at that point, uh, I was a virgin. So I had seen, I had seen a lot of sex in real life. <laughs> Before anything, that was oh boy. I it, to me to me that felt like a big deal. It doesn't feel like a big deal saying it out loud, but at the time I was like, is that going to be my first experience with this? Most kids like walk in on their parents accidentally or like oh they I don't know like all these things. And I saw a bunch of people 
dressed up fucking each other. And don't worry, death was there. I, 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 um, the follow-up is fast-forward to this summer. Uh, this summer, I went to Chicago. Um, I, I was going to take a finance job in town, and I stood up to my family in some ways. Uh, and I went to Chicago and was like, I'm going to work for a cool company and, and perform a lot in a big city, and I'm going to have a great time. Uh, what ended up happening is I watched... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I watched a very this is a very real number I watched 650 episodes of the hit anime One Piece uh, One Piece if you don't know uh, is, a, is a show that I love about, about uh, the Straw Hat Pirates led by Monkey D. Luffy who is on a quest to become the king of the pirates um, it is fantastic it's everything I want in the, in the world I remember that one of my first reflections when I was watching it was I had an AP Lang essay when I was a kid um, about the, like on the AP test it was should would you prefer to have 100% self confidence or 100% self doubt? And the time I was like, oh, 100% self doubt because then you can critique yourself, become better, and then you just keep critiquing yourself and become better and better. And then I watched One Piece and Luffy was really confident. And I was like, you got to be 100% confident. Falls <laughs> in, baby. This kid's gonna be king of the pirates. And then, uh, so uh, I slowly realized, though, I slowly realized as I was laying down eating empanadas watching this TV show that um, uh, this was that anime from the hotel um, <laughs> the, the, they were dressed up as the, the straw hat pirates because there was the boy with the hat there's a match uh, there was a woman with red hair there's a match um, but there was one person missing one very particular uh, isolated Figure, uh, the Grim Reaper. I had not, I, I was watching the show when I was about, I don't know, I just finished the uh, Ennis Lobby arc. Um, <laughs> that's real. And I, I just finished a certain amount of episodes that was pretty deep in, and I was like, I have not seen the Grim Reaper yet, and I'm pretty sure that that's, that's got to be a big enough element that it's going to come up. And then, uh, <laughs> and then sure enough, um, there is an there is a scary a scary plot where they're on an island in a very smoky area and they see a boat go by and there is a skeleton on board and they're all very frightened by the skeleton and then it turns out that the skeleton is their friend and his name is Brooke and he believe it or not is a perv <laughs> and that's my story <laughs> oh my god All right, we're closing out the stories on this year's Best Of with one more tour piece from a much more traditional show with an audience and everything at the Voodoo Comedy Playhouse in Denver. This one also features a returning Nerdalogs favorite and, in fact, a returning Nerdalogs member, Alex Talavera, who in this piece follows up on a story he shared way back in 2012 for the Propose a Theory episode about his family heritage and how he thinks it's not exactly what his family had been telling him the whole time. Turns out he was right. Uh, fellow Nerdalogs member Mary Beth Smith said it perfectly when she nominated this as one of her favorites, calling it, quote, a gut-wrencher that felt like it had been brewing for a long time. Also, it's just so great to hear Alex's voice again. Enjoy the return of this founding Nerdalogs member with mixed heritage. Six months ago, when everyone I knew and everything I read, when the thing they said could never happen, happened, my wife started crying on the couch. She was upset like we were all upset. But also she was afraid. She was afraid because, and this isn't her fault, she married and had kids with me. 
<laughs> I'm a Mexican-American. It's not obvious. <laughs> I'm second generation and thoroughly assimilated. I was into ska in high school, if that gives you a baseline. <laughs> but she is extremely white. And the sort of non-specific racial animosity that seemed to be permeating the election had never been directly aimed at her. Now, with two mixed-race kids, she was feeling that threat, and she feared for her kids and worried about what kind of challenges they might face growing up. And it made me feel like a real asshole, because I swear to God, I was not worried about them at all. (laughs) First of all, because I'm from Arizona, and unbelievably shitty racism against me and my extended family is so ingrained that, like, Trump is like a six or a seven on the AZ racism scale. (laughs) And also, because my wife, as I mentioned, is extremely white, and our kids, well, they have my hair and my eyes, are pretty much also going to be white. I'm not a punk! I'm going to teach them Spanish. And that Cinco de Mayo was fucking not Mexican Independence Day. And hopefully let them be proud of their heritage. But I'm also not going to pretend like I don't have a lot of thoroughly assimilated white people interests too. Hiking, yes, a walk to nowhere, is actually pretty fun. Skeptical minorities in the audience, give it a shot. I'm also realistic about my chances to, as a parent here, to like 100% deflect the swarming, assimilating culture in which my girls are going to be immersed. To paraphrase Jack Donaghy, the third generation snowboards and takes improv classes. (laughs) And here's some real shit for you. Turns out, I'm not even fully Mexican myself. This was not a surprise! In fact, about five years ago at a Your Story show in Chicago... I told a story under the theme of proposing a theory. The theory was that, contrary to my family history, I am not 100% Mexican, but likely 25% of Asian descent by way of my maternal grandmother and some smoldering hot Filipino dude that she banged, I can only imagine, on a filthy mattress jammed into the bed of a Ford Ranchero. This is where I assume my mother was conceived, even if she wasn't the child of infidelity, by the way. Back in the 50s, basically everyone was fucking in trucks, or (laughs) innovative truck-coupe hybrids. (laughs) But evidence in support of the theory, and I won't belabor it since I drunkenly rambled about this for like 20 minutes last time, is not insubstantial. My mom is extremely, some might say suspiciously, Asian-looking. Her family nickname to this day is China, which literally means Chinese. (laughs) Her baby pictures are fucking hilarious. If you think of them from the context of my grandmother showing them to people and trying to play it cool. (laughs) Really? No, I think she looks like your tío Rafai. See, right there in the finger? Webbing? (laughs) Anyway, last night, literally last night... My brother Carlos confirmed the theory. He had come over to pick up a couple things he left for the barbecue, and he and his girlfriend were playing with my two girls, reading them stories and fucking around. When suddenly he looks up like, Hey, did you hear we're part Asian? The fuck? (laughs) When he told me that mom had come out and confirmed it, I was a little sad, but only for my mom. Carlos and I had come up with this theory years ago, and after presenting it, 
we learned that a similar theory had been proposed by every single fucking person my mom had ever met ever. (laughs) Really, she was the lone holdout. And I know it was at least in part because she didn't want to accept the truth that might have tarnished her mother's memory. Apparently, my mom finally got more curious and protective and went on a fact-finding mission with her sisters. What happened was that Nana was separated from my grandfather and had taken in with a married man who'd promised to marry her just as soon as his wife died. Take a note, fellas. This is what used to be called being a gentleman. (laughs) Mom happened. My grandmother came back into the picture. Grandfather came back into the picture. And eventually they all moved to Arizona where somehow everyone agreed to swallow that mom took after Nana while the other kids took after their father. All 11 of them. (laughs) My brother concluded. Yep, part Filipino. Hey, your kids too. And Carlos is no biologist. (laughs) But I ran the numbers and shit checks out. (laughs) Now, there's some shit that maybe this explains, but mostly it doesn't change much of anything. Uh, My kids were already mixed race. To most people, it's just more history. The people that weren't going to be happy that half of them isn't white, I guess now they have an eighth of a model minority to up the ante. But really... I have a sneaking suspicion that in the coming years, white is either going to get a lot tanner or a lot quieter about this shit. (laughs) My wife, who looks like if copy paper could blush, (laughs) is Scots-Irish with some German and Italian thrown in there and at least one Sioux Nations people like all y'all fucking white people like to claim. (laughs) hundred years ago, White people would have fucking hated her. My best friend is Dutch-Irish, and his wife is black, and their kids are fucking awesome and speak French. My friend Jamie is half Japanese, half Mexican, and her husband is English, and their kid is going to go to school with my kid. And they might grow up and fuck. (laughs) And their kid will be what? So when my wife was crying, upset and fearful for our children... I understood, and let her know that I understood. But I also wanted her to understand that it will be different than what I went through, even at its worst. I hesitate to say better, but certainly different, because they will be different, and the yardstick against which they were measured will be different. And I have to imagine that if in 1953 my grandmother could be so uninterested in racial purity shit that she fucked a married Filipino dude... (laughs) in an artichoke-laden Ford T model. (laughs) There has to be hope for my kids in the year 2017. Thanks, guys. Yeah! Yeah. Alex Calavera, everybody. Real pleasure to have you. All right, y'all. That closes out stories for 2017 and brings an end to the sixth year of our podcast. We've got some sweet stuff cooking for year seven that we'll be announcing soon. Uh, until then, obviously, as I mentioned many times, we'll be ending this year with a bang at the Beat Kitchen this Sunday. Before that, though, we've got one more song to leave you all with. This comes from our fifth anniversary blast at the Hideout last December, which was the first time we ever did a full band performance on this show. It was also house band member James Snedeker's last show with the group, and he picked this Tenacious D song, a song he'd always wanted to do on stage as a kind of send-off. It features Dwight as JB, me as KG, and James as the devil, plus Mike Jando holding down those Dave Grohl drums. It could only be Beelzebos. 
See you Sunday and hopefully see you next year, friends. It's been a real good one. I am complete! Fuck! Yes, you are fucked! Shit out of luck! Now I'm complete and my cock you will suck! The world will be mine and you're first in line! You brought me the pick and now you shall both die! Wait, 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 you motherfucker! We challenge you to a rock Give us one chance to rock your socks off. Fuck! Fuck! If we win, you must take your sorry ass back to hell. I'm going there anyway. And also you will have to pay our rent. And what if I win? Then you can take Eric back to hell. What? Trust me, Rock, it's the only way <laughs> to be your little bitch. Fine, let the rock-off begin. I'm the devil, I'm a mental. Check this lick, it's fucking tasty. I'm the devil, I can do what I want Whatever I've got, I'm gonna flaunt There's never been a rock off that I've ever lost I can't wait to take Eric back to hell I'm gonna fill him with my hot demon gel I'll make him squeal like a scarlet pimpernel No! No! Oh, no! <laughs> Come on, Rock, let's bring the thunder. There's just no way that we can win. That was a masterpiece. Listen to me. He rocks too hard because he's not a mortal man. God damn it, Eric! You're gonna make his sex slave. You're gonna grrr mayonnaise. No! Unless we bust a massive monster mamma jam. Dude, we've been through so much shit. Been doing your stories five years with my dick. Now it's time to blow this fucker down. Now it's time to blow doors down. I hear your jables. Now it's time to blow doors down. Light up the stage, cause it's time for a showdown. We'll bend you over, then we'll take it a pound That's down. Right. Now we've got to blow this fucker down. He's gonna rape me if we do not blow doors down. Come on, Taze, now it's time to blow doors down. Oh, pile drive ya and have all the smack. Hey, down. Andy Glacer, be as a boss. We know.
production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today and go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome! Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.